HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Gastronomica's spring issue 23.1, now available online, focuses on authenticities, temporalities, and borders. This month, we're talking about figs, fashion, and craft, and exploring histories of chili eating and candy making. My guests this week are Patrick Charbonneau, Jeffrey Pilcher, and Kelsey Kilgore to discuss the Mexican roots of an American candy in the process of historical recipe recreation. Patrick is Professor of Chemistry and Physics at Duke University. He studies soft matter and statistical physics and occasionally lectures on the science of cooking and the history of chemistry. His investigation of historical North American confections stems from the interplay of these various pursuits. Jeffrey is a professor of history and food studies at the University of Toronto. His works on the history of Mexican food include Que Vivan Los Tamales and Planet Taco. He's currently writing a global history of beer. And Kelsey joins us from the Culinaria Research Centre at the University of Toronto. Her academic background in human- is in humanities and cultural history, and she's an upper-year PhD candidate in U.S. history writing on multi-century infantry training. Throughout her career and in between degrees, Kelsey's worked as a professional cook in restaurants in Ottawa and Toronto, and a decade of cooking in kitchens has trained her in the practical kitchen skills and knowledge that she now applies to the work of developing food pedagogies in the kitchen lab and assisting faculty research and innovation. Patrick, Jeffrey, and Kelsey, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Now, just to begin, I'll ask if you can each tell listeners what you're working on right now and um, how you came to this particular project on histories of candy making. Patrick, I'll throw it to you first and then and then Jeffrey. Okay, well, good morning. Um, my my the, current, the current research projects I'm working on involve the study of amorphous materials, mainly glasses. Uh, I'm a 
I'm a theorist and computational scientist in, in material science and soft matter, as we as you were just describing. Uh, and I teach a class once in a while about the science of cooking and, and how I got to the history of, of foods that I was I was asked to write a chapter about one of the experiments we do for that for that lab, one that I'm particularly attached to. And as I was preparing that chapter, I thought I should write something a bit cogent about the history of that that food, right? Because we were presenting the science and the and that, that goes behind it. But you know, there, there's some background to this. And I was as I was searching through the literature, I couldn't find anything or anything satisfactory, I should say, about the history of the particular dish I was preparing. So I started digging, and 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 that's where it eventually led me to uh, to Panerchita de Leche, uh, which is not what I was actually starting. What I started working on, but it was a very much parallel confection to the one I was interested in, which was sucralic ham, and and you know, and the rest I guess we'll explore today. Thank you, Jeffrey. How did you come to the project? Uh, hello. Well, first of all, um, uh, my current project that I'm just finishing up now is the history of beer around the world. Um, but the uh, the panochita. So I, I did my dissertation on the history of Mexican food. And I remember one time I was talking to somebody in Mexico. I don't even remember now who it was. And I explained my project and he said, but how can you do that? There's so much of it. And, and he was so right. But um, anyway, so I've, I've written a, a couple of books that tried to, you know, sort of offer interpretations of Mexican food. Um, and, and so in some ways I don't feel like I have anything big to say, uh, about the topic anymore, but, but there are just so many little things that catch my eyes. And, uh, so this one actually came, uh, straight from Patrick. Uh, he, he reached out to me and said, do you know anything about this? And I said, no, I haven't a clue, but it sounds interesting. And, and, uh, and as he said, uh, I guess the rest is what we'll talk about here. Thank you, Jeffrey and Kelsey. Hello, um, I uh, I came to this this project through uh, obviously through Jeffrey and my work as the administrator at the Culinary Research Center. Um, I was particularly excited about the the proposed kitchen aspect of it and the recreation as both a historian and as someone who had to uh, teach herself how to do sugar and cream work in a professional context. So having the opportunity to apply some of those skills was um, certainly a boon and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Kelsey. I have lots of follow-up questions about, about what that entailed, the sugar and the cream work, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. So uh, to begin, let's start with the dish itself, penalchicha de leche. How would you describe it? And, and this is a question for Jeffrey. How is it similar to or different from fudge or other fudge-like confectionaries? around the world. Wow. Actually, in some ways, Patrick might be better to physically describe the, uh, the difference. But let me just, uh, as a brief uh, kind of way of saying, is that it's, it's made with exactly two uh, ingredients, panochita, which is a very rustic sugar, um, and, uh, and leche, which of course is Spanish for milk. And, um, and you know, most of the recipes that you find for, uh, for fudge uh, in, in modern cookbooks are just chock full of different things, whether it's, you know, kind of ingredients like chocolate or nuts or other kinds of things. Um, but just as often it is um, sort of products of the industrial food processing. And so, you know, various kinds of, of prepared sugars that, that, again, Patrick is much better qualified to talk about than I am. Um, but uh, 
really, I guess, what separates Bonacita is, is this kind of rustic simplicity, but the enormous flavor that you get precisely because the sugar hasn't been, um, you know, kind of uh, processed to death. That, that, that these, these rustic refineries, and I mean, we're processing is all about, you know, kind of trying to, to reduce sugar to its, 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 its molecular, you know, to kind of purify it of all extraneous matter. But of course, those extraneous matters can, can, can provide a lot of the flavor in it. And so I think that the modernization of uh, sugar and, and many other things was, you know, in, in the pursuit of purity, uh, about uh, taking the flavor out. And certainly that was the case with the, the beer that, that I've been kind of uh, doing as, as my, my current research project. But let me, let me hand that off to Patrick because I think that his, his chemistry and physics background can actually uh, provide a level of, of, of um, kind of understanding for that question. Yeah, well, th thank you, Jeffrey. Um, I guess from, from a, a microstructure, from a, a material standpoint, they're not very different. In both cases, the, the base is a polycrystalline sugar. So you have crystals of sugar, a few microns, tens of microns in size. So uh, you know, a thousandth of a human hair, roughly, in, 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 in size. And, and it's this uh, collection of this aggregate of small crystal sugar, sugar crystals that, that give the, the mouthfeel, that give the crumbliness of, of, all, these, of all these confections. And then how you flavor them, what you add in terms of flavor molecule, whether chocolate or nuts or, or fruits or, or uh, other extracts, right, is what makes, gives, and, and end up giving them different names, but ultimately there's a certain universality in, in the structure. That said, I really like the, the way Jeffrey was introducing it, is that throughout the 19th century, you see a growing importance of refined sugar uh, at the expense of unrefined ones, whether you're talking about uh, maple sugar or, or, or brown sugars, to the point where uh, when we're doing fudge at the end of 19th century, we have to reintroduce flavor to the, the, the material, which is the sugar, to make it interesting. While if you go to the rustic version, which has sugar and so many more things to it, you don't need to add much more or you can just live with what you have. Thank you, uh, Patrick and Jeffrey. So your research cross-cuts the humanities and also the hard sciences. Can you tell us about your methodology, uh, Patrick, um, to begin? What were the benefits and, and some of the challenges of this approach of, of bringing together the disciplines um, for, for your research here? So for, for full disclosure, I'm a hard scientist by training. I don't have any formal training in the humanities. And, and therefore, I, I wouldn't be able to claim that my research spans both. Uh, I, I'm someone who's very curious and also someone that gets very frustrated when I don't find the right answer. My, my methodology is mostly based on the fact that if I can't find something, I have to figure it out. Uh, so, so I found myself with a problem in, in history, in, in food history, uh, not because I was seeking problems in food history, but just because I ran into one. And, and honestly, if I could find someone else to solve it for me, I would have been equally happy. But I couldn't find anyone to do it. So I, so that's how I became, that's my methodology for became, becoming involved in, in the humanities. Um, maybe not as, as a great message necessarily to pass on to trainees, but that's, that's how I came to it. That said, you know, there are some, some skills that are uh, scholarly skills in general, how to 
how to look for evidence and how to, to try to write it up and how most importantly, how to find the right collaborators to be able to complete a project, realize your limitations and find someone who can help you make the project whole because you know you can't on your own. Jeffrey, do you have anything to add? Um, Would you like to tell us a little bit about the time and place as to? First of all, I would just say that Patrick did an amazing job of research. Uh, And so uh, um, what he found, he found most of what we have. I know that there were some some, uh, uh, digital databases that I had access to that that he, he you know, weren't, weren't available to him, but otherwise, I mean, he, he did an incredible job. Um, I guess the two methodologies that I had, uh, and the first one was really, it was a world history approach. And because when he brought it to me, the question was, you know, was this invented in Mexico? And my, my initial thought was, nah, it couldn't have been. It had to have been from somewhere else. And so, you know, the, the first question we spent quite a lot of time was eliminating all the other possibilities, uh, you know, and, and, you know, searching through uh, whatever sources we could find on Europe, but also uh, abroad. And so we contacted uh, uh, a, a scholar from India, uh, Ishii Today, uh, to talk about, you know, Bengali traditions and just to make sure that, that this... Um, fudge was not, you know, something that had been made for thousands of years on the other side of the world. And, uh, and so I think the world history methodology, and then the um, uh, sort of, I guess, cultural history, uh, culinary history, um, is to sort of uh, follow the recipe and to try to almost do a genealogy, if you will, uh, or maybe paleontology is the appropriate metaphor here, you know, kind of trying to, to follow the, the fossil records of these, these recipes. And, uh, you know, there are still sort of missing links, I think, in, in what we found. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased that, that we were able to uh, reconstruct a good bit of how we think this, this recipe developed. Thanks, Jeffrey. And a quick follow-up then, um, what time and, and place um, did you narrow in on in the course of your research? Um, and what, what can you tell us more about those historical sources that you came to rely on in, in doing that? Well, I mean, you know, your, your time is always uh, sort of a function of, of the sources. And, and so the earliest manuscript cookbooks from Mexico are the late 18th century. And so it's, it's entirely possible that these go farther back, uh, but there's just nothing, you know, no written sources that, that let us point it to. But certainly by the late 18th century, we can see uh, this, this recipe um, uh, being prepared in, in different ways. And then uh, from that, we can kind of uh, think about, uh, first of all, what sorts of, of techniques using European uh, recipes that are, you know, technologies that are being used in the kitchen and also uh, what sorts of technologies are being used in, um, in uh, candy making and sugar making, uh, I guess. So uh, that would be sort of the, the sources that we have, but, but really nothing um, before these, these earliest Mexican recipes from the 18th century sort of pulls it all together to, to to be fudge. Were there any particularly memorable texts or accounts of the dish that you came across? And, and I know you mentioned the early 18th century, but some of your, your sources take you through even to the 20th century. Is that right? Wow. Memorable ones. Um, 
Gosh, actually, I mean, they're all kind of interesting in their own ways. Uh, but I can't really sort of isolate one. I, and, and in some ways, the, the reason for this is because, you know, having cooked them, uh, several of them, you know, I kind of like I'm influenced by how they tasted. And, and, and I did have favorites uh, of, of the ones we recreated. But uh, I, I actually, I, I can't really say that I have any favorites. Patrick, what, 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 what ones jumped up for you? Well, I think you had a favorite one, the one that mentioned Pio Pio. That's what it was that I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> which, which really, and, and, and I should say, we, I mean, I have, I have rudiments of, of Spanish and Jeffrey is, is quite fluent. And that particular word or expression, we truly didn't know how, what it meant. And so we were, we were wondering, is this sort of onomatopoeic, right? Is this how somehow it sounds when you stir it? So, but Jeffrey was really, uh, really obsessed in trying to figure out where that came from. So... Jeffrey, would you like to recall a bit what you did? Well, although actually, I have to, I have to tell you that that it was a friend who who speaks actually is a native Spanish speaker who really kind of pointed us to a, a dance tradition uh, from uh, the Caribbean that uh, is the only really source we've been able to to link it to, and 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 it appeared in the in the rest in the uh, in the um, uh, the. Uh, uh, etymological dictionaries as well. And so, uh, you know, you're supposed to stir it as if you were dancing a wild Caribbean dance. I can read, I can read the quote that you shared in, in the article too, in reference to this. Um, you say recipes also show the range of vernacular languages within Mexican confectionery. A manuscript from 1804 gives the following recipe and you quote, to a quart of sugar and a quart of milk cooked to a syrup of half stage and make them dance the P.O. P.O. to the appropriate stage, and end quote. And then you say the P.O. P.O. is a, a folk dance, a folk song and dance from the Gulf Coast. Um, so, so that one, that anecdote jump, jumped out at me in, in the course of reading your piece as well. And um, I think it, it emphasizes, in, in a sense, um, what, you, what you put as, you know, the recipe was evolving through the innovative work of, of multiple hands. Um, so I guess I have a question about innovation and the process of innovation. Uh, and and I'll, I'll ask Patrick, can you discuss the, the changes in the recipes that you saw evolve in this, this process of innovation um, for Pinocha? That's a good question. I thought, so I understood most of the changes in the recipe, mostly at the level of vocabulary. It's not that the recipe itself fundamentally changed but that uh, you know, maybe adaptations and flavorings can can change. And that, that takes place quite early on. People use this base, in a sense, and flavor it with their different complements. What, what I see as the fundamental innovation in the recipe is really the crystallization of sugar. This is a key, a key industrial and, and technological development that makes sugar desirable, marketable, uh, transportable, for long distances and and what i think so the key innovation in the sense that transfers to the recipe is people who had the mastery of crystallizing sugar repeatedly and and we know especially in the late 18th century early 19th century this is a big challenge people who were trying to, um, to to replace for instance cane sugar with other sources of sugar um, were struggling sometimes to to get them to crystallize we're talking about grape sugar about starch sugars 
or starch-derived sugar. And, and maple sugar, for instance, was seen as a potential substitute because it could so easily crystallize. Um, or you could find a way, there was a well-controlled mechanisms to do so. Um, and, and we also know that if you fast forward to the 20th century, many people who try to make, for instance, sucre à la crème, which is the, the parallel recipe in the Northeast, they often struggle to get them to crystallize. If, don't, if they don't have the firsthand experience of, of crystallizing sugar, it's a real challenge. So I, I infer from this that the key development, the key innovation was that you had people who were doing this on a professional level or a rustic level of preparing sugar uh, for resale and then could introduce milk as an ingredient and then sort of in a sense transfer that innovation from a means of production of sugar for, for resale to a, a recipe to for home production. And I think that's why you have these parallel evolution of Sukarakem and Panochita de Leche, both related to the rural developments of, of sugar crystallizing um, technology. Right. And and so the vernacular traditions um, were very important here. And, and Panochita de Leche was also historically sold by street vendors in Mexico City. Um, can you say more about that, Jeffrey? Is, is it still the case? And if not, when might that have changed as a, as a key point of distribution? That's a hard one to pin down, although there is actually a scholar in uh, Mexico who is, is working on that question. So there may be an answer for out there, but, but uh, really the, the sources that we found um, uh, without actually digging into uh, sort of municipal archives and, and seeing if they record things, which sometimes they do, but mostly they're they're really more concerned with health infractions or whether somebody has a license rather than, you know, kind of doing the Michelin guide to uh, to street vendors and saying what they're actually preparing. So it's a, it's a little hard to again find those sources, um, and the sources that we have uh, are mostly from a genre of. Uh, memoirs written towards the end of the 19th century, um, recalling the early days uh, by liberal politicians mostly. And that's uh, where we we kind of uh, sort of see these things. And, and of course, they're writing them in part because a lot of those traditions were already disappearing by the end of the 19th century. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say, but in Mexico City, uh, a lot of these, these early fashions are, are, you know, I mean, they're just, they're, they're just changing. And, and I mean, for the elite, it's, it becomes a, um, there's more interest in, in uh, uh, French cuisine. And then for, the, for the, the working classes, you're actually having people coming from all over. There's a, an amazing uh, sort of influx of migrants. And so, um, you know, there's, there's uh, I guess, you know, if you're interested in novelties, you know, the Panachita becomes kind of old hat and then they're bringing in new things. So it's, it's, it's really hard to pin down, but certainly uh, from the sources, they're, they're uh, as scattered as they are, uh, showing a decline in um, the availability. Now, today, actually, your, your most common uh, street foods are, I mean, candy-wise, are, are really, you know, chiclets, gum, I mean, packaged foods or prepared foods. Or if it's something that's been cooked at home, uh, most commonly, it's jello. Uh, that's the sort of the, the go-to street food. But, um, and, and again, all of these are sort of products of the, the, the food processing industry in one way or another. So, yeah, I think that, that uh, the rustic stuff just... Uh, 
gets consigned to the past. Now, a key part of your research was recreating the panochita de leche in the kitchen. When we come back from our break, we're going to talk more about that. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jacqueline Rowell, talking with Patrick Charbonneau, Jeffrey Pilcher, and Kelsey Kilgore about the newly published articles from Panocha to Fudge, Mexican Roots of an American Candy, and Recreating Colonial Mexican Fudge, Panochita in the Culinaria Kitchen Laboratory. Both of these pieces are available in the newest issue of Gastronomica, Spring 2023, and now available online. Um, so, so Patrick, um, we'll be, we'll, uh, this is a question for all of you, but we'll begin with Patrick. Uh, tell us about recreating the panachita. Was it always part of the plan to recreate the recipe? Um, and what were your expectations going into it? So I should say I was not directly involved in the recreation. Uh, it, it was not my idea and uh, I thought it was a fun idea, but I didn't think it was an essential one. It's only as we went through the process that I realized how essential it was, uh, both for from fundamental understanding and for for uh, for be learning how to share and to describe the recipe more fully. So I'd, I'd like to let Jeffrey and, and Kelsey comment more. I uh, I guess I I'm sort of uh, not that different from from Patrick in the sense that I, I thought well we absolutely have to try this I mean we have a kitchen right there's it's, it's sort of uh, this is this is all for the greater good of science um, but I too had no clue that you know the the sorts of lessons that we discovered about you know sort of the stuff that doesn't get included in the recipes that we would discover which you know would would make it you know, sort of uh, the, the the initial failures, which which kind of teach you so much about a recipe. Uh, so, and in, in, and in some ways, I mean, Kelsey was the one who came to the recipe with the came to the to, to the kitchen work, I guess, with the most um, sort of uh, uh, understanding, if you will. Kelsey, tell us more about the process, and also. Um, if you can walk us through through the recipe a little bit. 
So the process itself was really quite simple. And I think part of the challenge in thinking through how to, to do this work as research, as recreation, um, came down to sort of working backwards, thinking about the recipe as being historically rooted. In the kitchen lab, we have all kinds of fun equipment and a lot of you know, very modern, um, technical, specific, you know, precise equipment that sort of misses the point, I think, with some of the historical recreations. I come to it in part through the, uh, the, the teaching work that is done um, sort of through the kitchen where the, the recreation of historical recipes is a part of coursework for, for some of the classes held there. But the, I guess the essential goal always with these recreations is to try and think through the context in which they were being made. And that was how I came to the recipe or how I approached it initially, which was to, so I was thinking about things like who would be making it uh, and what kinds of, what access to fuel they would have, what kinds of tools and how much time would be allotted to a task like this. Sweet foods tend to be, uh, you know, not everyday items. And so they're not necessarily fit into the everyday uh, cooking unless they are a part of an additional food-based economy like street food, just like street vending. Um, in some ways, the thinking about it as a home food versus a, um, a you know, a professionally made confection really changed the approach. Uh, the approach was sort of framed with this idea that it would be a woman cooking in her home kitchen, not having a lot of time to focus on the the very precise and demanding uh, sugar work. So needing to know exactly when it hit the right stage to then add the milk uh, and then having the time to, <laughs> to dance with the recipe, but um, also not necessarily having access to enough fuel to keep it at a high enough temperature to uh, sustain a rolling boil long enough to crystallize properly. So these were all considerations that we, that we had going into the recreation itself. Um, there were definitely some surprises, but the work was as simple as following the rough measurements uh, with the two ingredients involved. And the two ingredients were, just to, to recap, the, tell us about the two ingredients. Sorry, the, the two ingredients uh, were uh, milk, and we had to figure out what kind of fat content we would typically be working with in this historical context. Um, and then the sugar itself, which has a high molasses content and therefore a high acid content, which is another component of the, the recipe that we had to grapple with. And how many times did you, um, how many trials did it take, um, before, before you got the result that you, you know, you, you were looking for or, or, um, hoping for how many trials and, and in total, how many hours, um, did you dedicate to recreating it? And it's in the various iterations. I I think we spent we we spent about an a, a, at least one afternoon working through all of the things that didn't work. Um, some of the the assumptions that I had made around acid, around the the shape of the sugar, around the the time required, uh, turned out to be less important than some of the other considerations that I think Patrick can speak more clearly to. But Jeffrey, if I could throw that to you, um, I, I have a wonderful picture of you with our array of experiments. 
Yeah, so we, I, I, I did was involved in three different versions of this, and, um, and and actually it took way longer than we thought. And this was really part of sort of separating out, you know, kind of the modern, which is to say, nineteenth century uh, versions of the recipe, which actually are much heavier in sugar and much less uh, milk, um, and going towards the uh, the actual Mexican versions of them where you have to cook down the milk for hours to get to the point where you can actually reach that 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 point of panocha as they called it right you know the the point where it's softball stage that and 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 of course it it just you know in the recipe that those hours are condensed in in you know in just a couple of words you know bring this to the panocha stage uh and um and so anyway so it was i guess uh, about three hours on three separate occasions before we we finally got it right and uh, I guess the one thing I will add to that is just how much physical labor it is to stir for three hours. And then to, you know, at the end, I mean, when you've been doing this for so long, you have to beat the hell out of it. I mean, it's really, I mean, to get that, uh, you know, to, 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 to get that crystallization, uh, you have to really beat it. And I was exhausted. And finally, we decided, why aren't we using the KitchenAid here? And, uh, and it worked beautifully then. Patrick, can you tell us more about, or if you can expand on how the material properties change or, or how you anticipate that the material properties are going to change as the recipe comes together? And um, maybe then Jeffrey can comment on, on how that lined up with, with the trial in the kitchen. Yeah, so, so the, key, the key idea of the recipe well, there, there's two key ideas. First is to concentrate the sugar, and second is to beat the sugar to induce the, the crystallization. But the first one, right, which is the one that takes a long time, uh, is a very, very simple idea in, in, in confectionery. Uh, whether you're preparing maple sugar from, from maple sap or you're making panocha, all it is is you need to evaporate tons of water to get to the right concentration of sugar. and and. Well, part of my uh, of my naivete, I guess, in this respect is that I never started with such a low concentration of of sugar. Right, the times I'd done a parallel recipe was starting with with heavy cream, which is already thirty times thirty fold concentrated compared to, or sorry, tenfold concentrated compared to milk. So I never thought of this stage as being very tedious or long, up until uh, Jeffrey and Kelsey tried to to do it, and then realized that you need it's actually really a lot of boiling that needs to take place to reach about in the in the vicinity of about 95% sugar in the end. Wherever you start is not so important, but you will end up at 95% sugar, which is what the, the, the particular stage of sugar correspond, uh, coincides with. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's what's going on, going on from a material standpoint. At, at primarily, that said, it is true that if you do boil something over a long time, especially something that contains a lot of proteins and sugar like milk, you are favoring Maillard reactions, which are not very fast at low temperature, so at boiling stage of, of sugar, but they do proceed, especially if you do that over thirty over three hours, compared to, let's say, boiling your heavy cream over 12 minutes. Um, so th that develops the flavor in ways that I think Jeffrey and Kelsey have, um, have remarked. Jeffrey, did that, did that line up with um, your experience in the kitchen the first time? 
Oh yeah, because you know we were sort of stirring it forever and nothing was happening, and and um, and finally I was I was you know like uh, frantically emailing Patrick and and uh, you know sort of looking through other recipes and discovering that I mean something that that's obvious when you're you when you sort of know to look for it, but that you know all of these even you know late nineteenth century recipes you're 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 cooking mostly sugar with a little milk. Um, and, uh, and, and you don't get that long cooking, which is really, you know, as Patrick said, it's, it's more like the actual, um, work that's being done in, 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 uh, um, in, in sugar refining, right. You know, sort of uh, boiling it to, uh, to cook out all of those impurities, uh, um, to get down to that crystal sugar. And, uh, and yet, you know, once again, it's the question of, of what uh, flavor gets lost, the Maillard reactions, uh, that, uh, um, that when, you, when you do it, this, this original, very labor-intensive way uh, are lost. And, and, and just, you know, kind of uh, the, the depth of flavor you get from that, that uh, labor-intensive process. So in your piece, you describe the process of reproduction, um, of reproducing that recipe um, as a form of recipe recreation. And so you distinguish between reenacting the recipe, re reverse engineering the recipe and recreating the recipe. So I'm wondering, why did you settle on the term recreating? And how, it, how is recreating um, connected to or different from an experiment, um, in a sense, uh, Patrick, can you can you start us off, and then maybe Jeffrey? So, so the way I understood this recreation to begin with, which is why I was not sure it was helpful, and it turns out to be you know the mis the, the wrong approach. But I used to, or initially, I thought of it as a as a demonstration. The way that when we teach first year chemistry classes, we make few things explode because it, it, it makes for an impressive show. Uh, not because there's really fundamentally something new to learn about the the, the compounds we we get to to burn at the particular day, um, so that's how I initially understood the recreation. But um, as I said, this was this is a very naive way of, of thinking of it. And as Kelsey and, and Jeffrey have already described to some degree, there's there's things to be learned uh, in the process. So the uh, the question of what exactly we were doing in the laboratory was one that the gastronomica editors asked, and um, and it, I really wasn't sure. As, as as Patrick said, I thought at first that this was you know just kind of something that we were doing as almost as a presentation, and and hadn't realized that that there we would learn so much from doing it, and so. You know the terms uh, of of reenacting and um, uh, and and if reverse engineering didn't really seem to apply, and so it's sort of left with uh, recreation. And and I suppose you know I mean it's not a definitive term. I, I would love to see other people weigh in on that, but that was sort of what we came up with. So as we as we get closer to to wrapping up our conversation, I'm wondering. Uh, this is a question for Kelsey. What other kind of experimental work, or in terms of recipe recreation, um, or otherwise, happens in the culinary kitchen laboratory? The culinary kitchen lab is used for all kinds of different iterations of what food studies means, um, and all kinds of of different experiments around 
around food in a very broad sense. So in addition to these kinds of recreations, and I do particularly like that term, by the way, Jeffrey and Patrick, uh, those, you know, those kinds of recreations happen often in the context of, as I said before, our, our courses, but also through uh, the seminar series we run. And so there are uh, places where we facilitate that kind of work. But the lab is also a place where we are starting to uh, really forge a lot of connections with community-facing projects. And right now the, the lab is doing double duty as both a sort of a physical kitchen in which to consider these historical recipes and try to contextualize them, but then also uh, helping to create new pathways forward in, to, in terms of food access and food security. So it's a, it's a very uh, dynamic place for working with and experimenting with food and questions around food. And Kelsey, what historical recipes are in the pipeline um, for future recreation in the lab? The recipes that uh, are, spring to mind as points of recreation are uh, ones actually that, that might be building on both this project, uh, but also building on some of the work that was done through a pop-up restaurant we recently ran, which was a recreation of multiple historical recipes, but some of them are uh, related to uh, ways of re reasserting and reworking um, oral knowledge, uh, oral histories, and uh, written or sorry, non-written recipes in back into kind of a, um, a a wider framework of understanding. So these are pieces that we're starting to work on um, through collaborations with Indigenous youth groups and with our community at large in both our local area and with international partners. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick, Jeffrey, and Kelsey for joining us. Listeners can read the full articles in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.1. That concludes our podcast feature of Gastronomica's spring issue. For details on the issue, visit gastronomica.org and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.